What if you could learn from physical product entrepreneurs that have risen up from the trenches to dominating their market by creating successful physical product brands? Well, this podcast is hosted by me, Kunay Campbell, and it's about breaking the mold to becoming a smarter, savvier, and better product entrepreneur. You discover how to take physical products from concept through launch and to scaling up from physical product entrepreneurs who've taken their revolutionary ideas to 1 million, 10 million, and 50 million plus in revenue businesses. You'll also join me on my journey to build a million dollar physical product brand business in a year, where we both will learn about crowdfunding, selling to retail chains, launching through marketplaces like Amazon, strategic partnerships, publicity, celebrity endorsements, and selling direct to consumers. So if you're creating or building a brand in the consumer packaged goods space, in fashion and apparel, business products, or any physical product niche, listen in because we have you covered. Join the fast track to physical product business success. This is the Physical Product Business Podcast. I'm Kune Campbell. Let's get rolling. Hi guys, welcome to the Physical Product Business Podcast, part of the 2X e-commerce podcast. And on this episode, we're going straight into the fundamentals. Yes, the fundamentals I, I, I talk about. And what are the fundamentals? Um, I will allow my guest who is an expert marketer, you know, flesh things out. I'll just give you a little bit about what is he's done, he's managed to achieve. So he was the head of marketing and PR on a website called GOG, G-O-G.com. And I believe they used to sell like digital gaming products, right? And he yes, grew sir. revenues from mid six figures annually, wait for it, to mid seven figures monthly, okay? so. Ideally, we're looking at uh, an eight-figure business, basically from a six-figure to an eight-figure business, right, in just four years, right? And um, yeah, that's why he's here. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Trevor to the show. Welcome, Trevor. Hello, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Fantastic. Um, thank you for making you know the show, and I, I'm super excited to figure out how or flesh out how you you manage to, to 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 achieve this feat of six. Typically, people do six to seven figures. You did six to eight over four years. I have to say, but um, would you kind of um, introduce yourself, please, um, so so the audience can find out a bit more about you? Sure. So I'm a marketer. I've been doing this since. Uh, 1997, wow. uh, I, I got started in the business doing um, advertisements and, and design for a weekly newspaper in uh, back in Orm Beach, Florida, where I'm from. And uh, kind of from there, I've been, uh, I've run my own business a couple times. I ran my own website design company in high school. Right. Um, I went then uh, went to work for the University of Central Florida. I was in their marketing department while I was going to school. Ran my own business again. Just a whole bunch of, you know, and moving back and forth, almost always internet-based with the exception of the very, very beginning. Okay. Um, got a degree that focused on marketing, but wasn't super impressed because back in early 2000s, you know, uh, the people who were teaching marketing are 50 and 60. And they're like, this internet thing, it's not gonna be a big deal. Like, what you need to learn is is how to do direct mail flyers and this kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe compared to some of the marketers who are getting started today, or even guys who've been in the industry for a while, uh, a lot of the actual tactics they taught in school were not very useful anymore. I don't think I've sent a direct mail flyer in 15 years, but 
their strategies and the way they approach the foundation of here's what you have to know to do marketing well is still very important. And I think a lot of people just get started with tactics right now and don't pay attention to those fundamentals. And so kind of part of what I was going to talk about here on your show is how those fundamentals really informed uh, what happened at GOG, what I've done in companies I've gone to since, like all this stuff comes back to the same kind of fundamental well of uh, knowledge and experience and, and ways to approach solving a problem. You don't get those if you don't study the foundations first. Okay, okay. So you, you have a pretty detailed background that has um, moved from more theoretical academia to the internet, right straight into the internet, and you've pretty much... Um, pretty much had your entire marketing career in this digital age. So you probably seen the rise of desktop and now mobile, you know, um, just mobile marketing in, in, in general. Um, and I love what you just said about the fundamentals. Okay, so let's just jump right straight in and let's talk about what you think are the fundamentals that um, have stood the test of time, right from the direct marketing um, time to the SEO AdWords time to now the mobile social, you know, um, you know, era more or less. So, in your opinion, what's been consistent <clears throat> all through? One thing that's quite consistent is you think about desktop advertising, you think about search advertising, you think about social media advertising, like all of those are actually one channel of marketing in your traditional marketing mix, it's direct advertising. It is, I know someone has an interest in a thing, let me present them with an ad. So when you say, oh, I'm gonna solve this with social, uh, well, it's direct advertising, I'm gonna solve this with search. Like it's still, it's fundamentally, the same mentality as if you were doing a direct mail flyer. Now, part of where people don't get the, uh, who don't have the fundamentals, don't really understand is back when you had direct mail advertising, for example, uh, sent through flyers, your metrics weren't nearly as good. You had to have a really good theory and a good gut instinct when you started, or it'd be very easy to order 10,000 flyers, send out 10,000 flyers, pay 25 cents a flyer for the postage, and then lose all that money. Nowadays, with internet advertising, you can try something and immediately be like, oh, a week later, that didn't work, and switch. And you're not out thousands of dollars, you're out a couple hundred of it, you, you pivot. Um, that's part of why folks don't really get those fundamental. I think, I think the ones that, that work really well when you're thinking about uh, how you wanna construct your, your funnel for your business. There's the, the classic four Ps of marketing that everyone teaches and some people maybe disparage. I still think it's a useful kind of mental approach to how do I want to get something out to market? And that's product, price, placement, and promotion, right? Those are the, the four Ps. Okay. Um, and kind of, uh, before we started recording the show, you asked about this, you know, where does branding fit into those four Ps? Branding actually takes you back before the four Ps. Uh, not branding in the case of like, what's my logo look like, but branding in the case of um, why am I in business? What does my company do? Who do I sell to? Who do I speak to? What's their pain? That's all branding. Uh, I love what and you just said, the, the why are we in business? You know, that core. Uh, yeah. And everything kind of like, you know, um, circles around it, right? Yeah, if you don't know that, 
then you're not going to be able to promote effectively. Uh, if you have, if you don't know the reason why you're providing a product or a service to somebody, then you don't know what to tell them when they come to you, right? Your website's not going to make sense. Your ads won't make sense. Even if, you're, if you've got salespeople calling, they won't make sense because they don't know that why. So answering that why first then defines kind of what's the product. You don't know what your product is until you know why you have it and who you're selling it to. So then when you define the product, the same product can, with slight changes in branding and why, be a different product, right? You have um, Campbell's onion soup mix, right? It's an envelope full of salt and onion powder and garlic and a beef stock and like, you can make onion soup with it. You can also make, if you put it into a, a tub of sour cream, you can make dip with it. It's the same spice packet, but how you approach the way you use this completely changes what you expect. Onion soup is, you know, kind of a healthy thing. Chip dip made out of sour cream is not. Like all this exact same product, the way you market it is completely different. So something that simple changes what your product is, even though the contents are exactly the same. Right. Uh, and then price is, of course, uh, part of who do you sell to, right? right? If you're selling the exact same product, but you have uh, Campbell's Soup Deluxe Soup Mix, you charge an extra two bucks for it, it's a premium product, and you package it differently, you change the color scheme, you uh, change how you talk to people, and it's not about, hey, this is cheap soup, but it's rather about, this is artisanal soup made by specially trained grandmothers in their kitchens, and they work day and night to put love so, in the soup, whatever. Like, so so do, you, do, do you think if you have a good enough story, you could change a commoditized product to, to 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 a brand more or less, and you, you you command a premium on price. Of course, that's mm -hmm. that's what the best brands have done. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about Nike shoes, right? One of the strongest brands out there. Um, their shoes are not in any way that I can determine better than a twenty dollar pair of sneakers, but you're paying one hundred and fifty two hundred dollars for them because they have that brand. They're made in the same factories in China as the cheap ones. There's no inherent superiority, just that's the brand, that's the product. I mean, any fungible item, right? Clothes, uh, sneakers, I don't know, cars, everything like these are, to some extent, it's branding that makes the difference, right? A Honda car is a reliable, well-built, dependable, efficient car. So is a BMW. You pay a lot more for the BMW, even though the performance envelope is pretty similar. Of course, as I say this, anybody who listens to your podcast and is a, a gearhead is like, no, you fool, they're different. Well, uh, a little bit, but most of it is the way you feel about them is different. Right. Do, do you build, I, I think feeling um, comes in two strands. Um, when it comes to product experience. Um, one is obviously the messaging and um, the other with regards to, 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 to feeling is the product itself, the product experience, you know? Um, and I think you need to kind of optimize both to right. so qualify yourself as a premium brand. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. 
Okay. Yeah, but that also goes back to to your brand and the fundamental strategy. Um, if you're a new business, if it's a, a startup or a relatively new business, um, one thing that's important to realize is the way that you think about your product is the way that it will be perceived. You, if you think your product is crap and you try to market it as luxury, there's going to be a disconnect in the way you present it, in the way you uh, market it, in the way you talk to people about it on the phone, like all these things. Um, I'll give an example from a company I worked in, in the past called Contact.io. Uh, they, they were a hardware manufacturer for um, Bluetooth electronics. And uh, when I joined them, they had their, uh, their hardware was put in this very thin, cheap plastic and set in kind of regular, ordinary cardboard boxes. Well, they had the highest performing product on the market, but people wouldn't feel that when they bought it mm-hmm. because it looked cheap. So they'd go like, well, you're charging too much, right? You're asking for twelve dollars per per little beacon, and other folks in China are charging three. Why are you charging so much more? And our answer is because it's better, and they didn't feel it. So you change the packaging, you change the website design, and you convince the whole company. You tell the salespeople, you tell the guys who are in shipping and receiving, and you hammer it home until they believe you that we're a high quality product. We're an excellent product. Look at how well we're presenting ourselves now with a new case, with a new box, with new instruction manual inside all of this. And then people stopped complaining. But the internal hardware were the same. We didn't change what we were manufacturing. We changed how we packaged it and we changed how we felt about it. If we had just changed the packaging and we're still like, whatever, throw a hundred of them in a box and ship them, you don't have that experience the whole way through and you don't believe it. But everyone came to believe, no, this is a high quality product. It's very valuable. People get a lot of use out of it. Let's treat it with respect. I agree. So that feeling has to be two-sided and it has to emanate from you, the brand. And and then, you know, you amplify it in everything you do um, from the website through to your product, through to how you talk about it. And that energy, <laughs> that feeling actually transfers to, to the market and the perception then, you know, um, comes through. Um, very, very, very interesting, you know, um, um, perspective, the feeling part especially, which I've never, you know, really come, um, I've never really heard about, which is very, very good. Okay, so um, in, in regards to, so can a brand get away with feeling great, feeling premium about their brand, but also being, you know, competitive. So you deliver a very high quality, you know, product, but at the same time, you do not necessarily um, charge the highest price. Would you recommend that? Or, you know, as a competitor, you want to stay competitive in price. You have your, your economies of scale from a production standpoint, but your packaging is looks premium. You know, your product is premium and your messaging is premium. Are you shooting yourself more, more on the foot if your pricing isn't premium? Well, there's, there's two different ways to approach this. One is to say that we are a purposefully smaller batch and that's how we how we work, we charge more per item and we, we don't do the volume, but we make more per item. Mm-hmm. Um, another way is to say we're premium, higher scale, but then your, your fourth P, promotion, comes in. And you can say, uh, this is a luxury product, but 
once or twice or however often a year or a month or whatever, some of it comes down. And then if you built a following for your brand, when you drop the price, a whole bunch of people are going to want it. Oh, now this is on sale. I want to get this. You know, um, MA, the bad manufacturer, super luxe, super expensive. They do have an annual sale where they drop their prices about 20 or 30%, not like hugely, but enough where everybody's been saying, well, I'm going to wait till the sale. Okay. And now they come. And so when they drop their prices there, they're more comparable to, I'd say, not upper tier luxury prices, but kind of mid or even lower tier luxury prices on their product. So all those folks who can't really afford the uppermost tier, ah, I can now come and buy here. So MA gets the advantage of, we've got this luxury status, but some of our product, not all the product, some of the product we're gonna drop in price and make available at a broader reach. Meanwhile, you've still got that exclusivity because yeah. some of these products will never go on sale. Yeah. And so if you see someone, oh, you've got the really expensive bag that never goes on sale, you've got the social cachet of look at this as opposed to just saying I have an MA bag. Right, right, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, right, okay. And then um, you, you just talked about product price. What about promotion and placement? So promotion and placement are what most people think of when they think of marketing. Um, a lot of people when they think of marketing don't think of how do I take a product and define it or how do I figure out what price you should charge. Uh, and, and that's overlooked a lot. Uh, people say biz dev is price or sales determines price or the CEO or whomever. Marketing can figure out a good price with market research and particularly now online measuring. But both of those aside, the traditional marketing areas are promotion and placement. And what that means is I'll go back to online advertising, right? When you advertise on social media, you're placing how your product is perceived into Facebook, into Twitter, into LinkedIn, into wherever. Now, the actual placement of the product itself is, depending on what type of product you have, right? Is it uh, an online shop? Is it available in the retail? Uh, which retail stores? Like, this is where you've actually placed your product. And for most of your listeners, I'm going to assume they're not the sort of people who are launching a retail business because the overhead and timeline and money required to do that's pretty tough. Most folks are going online. So your placement by default these days almost is always online and then maybe somewhere else too. Okay. So in some ways, the, the, the actual placement of the product itself is... Uh, foregone conclusion for most small businesses or even medium-sized businesses mm -hmm. you're online you have to have that um, where you go beyond there is almost that's something you determine after you've launched after you found if you have product market fit and after you've started to see that this is something I can sell and make money off and then promotion is how do I tell people about me and part of this is where do I place my promotion right um, that's includes things like direct advertisements, that's, SC, that's uh, search engine marketing, that's social media marketing, that's uh, display ads, like all that. It's uh, some actual promotion of you, whether it's through PR or whether okay. it's through uh, organic link building. Yeah. That includes uh, partnerships, brand pairings, all these sorts of things where you're leveraging somebody else to help get the word out. Um, all of this fits into your promotion strategy. And if you only say, 
we're going to buy social ads or we're, we're going to do SEO. We're going to do any one of these. You're missing out on the mix of different channels you need to use and test particularly okay. to see where is their traction? How do you actually get traffic? How valuable is that traffic? So, so, so um, you, you suggest you, you test channels, you know, and, um, and then you switch. You have to. Okay. Uh, right, because cool. there's, but you can get, it's cheap to buy traffic, right? It's really easy to say, I'm going to go on Facebook and pay 200 bucks and bring traffic to my website. But if you don't see what might happen if you spent, like let's say you're, you're paying yourself 20 bucks an hour. If you spent 10 hours doing outreach and try to get journalists to cover you and you get five journalists to cover you and they bring in more traffic or better traffic, it, you need to know which is better for your business. Exactly. And there's no, there's no blank rule. I can't just tell your listeners, hey, this is what's going to work for your business because every business is different. Great, great. Okay, I have a question, and this is from a marketing standpoint, tracking back to product and price, right? As fundamental as product and price are to the four P's of marketing, um, in some businesses, marketers have a challenge. They are unable to influence product and unable to influence price in terms of make adjustments, despite these being key level points for marketing strategy. I'll give you an example. If you were like selling apparel, sports apparel, and you had um, a SKU count of 100 products, right? Um, and you're competing in a market, you know your key competitors in a market, you're, you're, you're you know, given the remedy to grow this business, this sports apparel business. Let's say you were selling, sh um, um, uh, let's see, um, just um, gym tops or um, just outfits for, for, for a gym, apparel, you know. So let's say you're, 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 you're tasked to, to build out, you know, sales and you clearly see competition. Your, your competition have either higher quality products than yourselves, than, than your company, or they have a wider range of styles. So you're up against a company, you're doing 100 SKUs, and your nearest competitor, the competitor you, you've been you know, given the remit to beat has a thousand products, a thousand styles. So when, so their audience, you know, when the same people you send traffic to your website actually visits your competitor's website, they will buy something just off the back of the odds of styles. You know, they, they just have that um, edge. Uh, and then you go back to your boss as a, as a marketer and you say, look, um, I think we have a product problem and they don't see the product problem, you know, basically you're not competing with options. You're not, you're not providing the market with what it wants, you know. Um, how, what do you do next as a marketer? Um, how do you collate data to prove, you know, that, um, do you know what, um, this is, we have, we clearly have a product problem and not necessarily a promotion or a placement problem. Well, there's a, a couple different ways you can you can do this now. Uh, definitely benefits in how online marketing works because it's much easier to get this kind of info than it used to be. Um, you start with by saying on your website, when you see exit intent, you just ask somebody, hey, why didn't you buy? 
is, is there something that you want that we don't have? And if their answer is yes, and a lot of them say yes, well, heck, there's, there's no need for you to make an argument to your boss. The data just argued for you, right? You say, hey, look, 30% of people who are leaving our store left because they said, we don't have what they want. That's, that sounds pretty bad. Like either they couldn't find it, in which case our problem is more with placement in the website and less with the product, or we legit don't have it. We don't have it. And a third of our traffic is saying we want maybe one or two different types of product that we don't currently carry. Then you do the math and you say, well, what's the cost for spooling up? What's the cost for holding the inventory? What's the cost for you know, changing our supply lines? And then what's the profit we might get if we could convert five or 10% of this third of our audience to actually buy? But if you've got a hundred products and somebody else has a thousand, and you're like, well, I can't compete because they have more product than I do. That's not usually the case. What you have to do is, it comes back to uh, promotion and placement to say, uh, how do I bring the right people to me? I don't want to bring everybody, like if I only have 100 products in my athletic apparel company and they're all for hardcore runners and somebody else has a thousand products for runners and bikers and swimmers and I don't know, kayakers, like all this stuff. I don't want to bring anybody who's not a runner to my site. I want to choose my placement such and my promotion such that the people I bring to me are the ones who are most likely to care about my product. And if my product is not well differentiated, if I just have a hundred different SKUs of stuff and some other folks have a thousand different SKUs of stuff, then your product problem isn't that they have a thousand SKUs. Product is very, very rarely somebody else has something and I don't. Product is almost always, I don't present myself right. So it could be that my hundred different SKUs of stuff, I need to take these hundred SKUs and divide them into 20 groups of five. And those 20 groups of five are then super, super targeted. And they go really deep and we go, all right, this particular bunch of athletic apparel is very appealing to moms who have kids in school and who wanna go get back in shape now because finally they're able to have the time. All right, we need to build that product and not just assume that moms will come to our site and go, well, let me find it. No, let's message to them, promote to them, target them and show them the whole way through the product, this is for you. And then you take the same product and maybe a slightly different color scheme or uh, different silkscreen printing on it or something and you say, now we're gonna target this variant of the product to college girls who wanna look cool while they're hanging out at the gym and not really getting into it or something. Okay, boom, you find those people, you target to them, you know your persona, which goes all the way back to brand and it shapes the product and then you're able to from there figure out the other three piece. It makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. So what if in a scenario there's clearly, you, you've answered it kind of, that there's a, there's a product issue, you know, where um, in that example, you know, you have other athletic apparel, you know, companies 
you know, that have a wider range or, you know, wider, you know, um, style for, 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 for shoppers. Because, um, you know, and, and that's the standard in the industry. You, you look at um, the average in the industry and it, it's just blatant that, you know, your company, do you niche down in your strategy and just, you know, target, decide to just scale down? How do you influence, you know, um, product improvement as, as a marketer? As a marketer, you're a warehouse of information about what the customers do. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly in a, uh, a B2C business, right? You, there's no salespeople usually. No. The salespeople maybe are getting you placed in this retail chain or that retail chain, but they don't deal with the customer. Um, with that data, you have a responsibility to inform people of what the data says. And if you see, hey, a whole bunch of people are coming to uh, this particular product's page and they almost all bounce. And like we've tried three or four different versions of the page, none of them fix the problem. It's not the page design then, because this same page design tried out on other similar products is working. It's not for this one. Either the product is not a good product, it's not competitive in some way, or you should stop carrying it. And you can maybe simplify your your logistics and open up some resources in your business to go try something new now. You can say, hey, according to our research, these five product, they're not worth the cost of stocking them in inventory. But if we shut them down and we have a big sale and get rid of all the inventory, we've opened up warehouse space, we've opened up uh, the ability for our sourcers to go out and find new stuff. And here's product that we think people want. And so what you do is you can help age out and argue for a product that needs to be removed from the list. And then you can say, all right, based off of feedback, let me jumpstart the product conversation. Don't, don't go to, uh, this is maybe not marketing, this is I think life advice, but it's never wise to go to your boss and say, I have a problem, what should I do? It's always much better to say, we have a problem, here's how we should fix it. And after you've done that for a while and your boss has come to appreciate your industry experience and knowledge and expertise, it's even better to say, hey, we had a problem. Here's how I fixed it. I'll let you know what the results were. Now you're not even asking for someone to make a decision. You're just saying, here's what happened. If in the product market cycle, you say, here are our problems. Let's get rid of them. Here are the fixes we should have. Now the product team doesn't have to go, well, you know, we might do this, but I don't know what to replace it with, and it's hard to get sourcing, and I don't want to do it, is fundamentally what people are saying. When someone asks you how, they're really asking you, why should I do it? I don't want it. It's a change. So if you can make it where you don't have to ask the how, where you can just say, here's an answer, and you don't have to drive it through. You don't have to be a guy with, you know, your fist punching folks down and say, do it this way. But you can be the guy who says, I've opened this door. Would you like to step through? It makes sense. Yeah. And they may be like, no, I don't want to step through. In which case, okay, let's go find something else. But 
make it obvious where like we have a problem, here's the solution I recommend, is a good way to go at it. Um, you also look at uh, the, the, the kind of the quadrant of uh, performance of a product versus demand for the product. <clears throat> and you've got your, your rising stars that are maybe not staples of your business, but look promising. You've got your uh, top performers, the ones that are doing great. You've got your uh, old worn out product that may still be doing well, but it doesn't have a good trend. And you've got your dog, just the garbage that you should get rid of. And like, whenever you're a marketer, if you've got multiple product to sell, what's, what's your dogs? What's your garbage? Get rid of them, make room for something new. And if you're like a SaaS business, <coughs> what what users of yours are the dogs or the worthless ones, right? Pareto's principle, 20% of your users or 20% of your product make the majority of your revenue, whether that's 80% or 70% or 90%, like that varies. But it's true in almost every industry, all through nature, all through everywhere. Focus on that 20%, discard some of the 80% to make room to find more stuff that goes into your 20%. Okay, okay, Trevor, let's let, let's move on to the, the core. You know, we, we, we got in touch with regards to how um, you were able to, to move GOG.com um, from a six-figure per month business to, to, to a seven-figure you know, um, per, per month business over the course of four years. Should we flesh out how you did it from a 4P's marketing standpoint? What was their situation before and how did you kind of move them to, 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 to where, they, where revenue was? Sure. So uh, when I joined GOG, they were a, a pretty small company uh, that specialized, as you said, in selling uh, digital game products. Um, they had a, a very strong kind of core following, and they had a, a unique product in the marketplace, but one that was not especially valuable. Hmm. Uh, and their product was that they didn't sell the newest games, they actually sold old games, and GOG stood for good old games. And the really old games had a, a strong emotional appeal to them, right? Because people would buy the games, not so much to play them, they buy the games because 10 or 15 years ago, when they were a kid, they loved them. And you buy them, and you don't have that game anymore because in 15 years you've moved house twice, you, your computer won't run the game anymore, whatever, whatever. Just owning that thing that you used to love feels nice. Mm -hmm. So well, the way I approached this was start and say, what's the core on the brand? What makes the brand work? And there were, three different cores. Um, there was DRM free, which doesn't mean much unless you're a gamer. A DRM is basically copy protection. And all these old games did not have copy protection, but most new games do. And you can either say to a, a partner or a publisher whose games you want to sell, you can say, hey, sorry, we're not going to add DRM to your game because it's too expensive, which is kind of a negative thing. Or you can say, we as gamers are emotionally invested in saying copy protection is stupid, nobody likes it, and so as a point of ethics, we don't add DRM to the games. And now, you've taken what's a weakness, you can't afford to do something, and turned it into a strength. And you've said, this is who we are and it matters, it's a principle. 
and a lot of gamers were like, yeah, DRM sucks, we hate DRM. That's awesome that you don't have it. Then fair prices, we were charging quite reasonable prices and we were charging the same prices everywhere in the world. And then customer love, which is kind of squishy, but the whole company was, all of us were video game players. We all been playing games for years and years and years. And so we believed in the product. We liked what we sold and the, the respect and love we had for the product and for other people who were like us was evident in everything we did. Mm-hmm. Those are the kind of the branding fundamentals. Yeah. And then from there, we go into product, price, placement, and promotion. So uh, one of the problems we had was, as I mentioned, these games aren't particularly valuable because they're, they're old games. So one of the things I did was say, how do we sell something that's more valuable? We can't really charge more for a 10-year-old game. No. We maybe sell a different kind of game. And so we looked and said, you know what? A lot of people who make small games, indie games, games developed by a two-person or a four-person or a 10-person studio, they don't get a lot of visibility when they launch their game because Steam, which is the number one guy in the market, they put out like 30 games a week. If you don't have a budget to get found, you won't get found. So we said, well, let's release two games a week that are indie games and let's help promote them. So our users now come to us for a different kind of game that we charge more for. Okay. Right? You charge 15 or 20 or $30 for a new game, which is not a whole lot of money, but when you sell games for $5, starting to sell games for 30, that's a big bump. And what you get out of that is any online distributor sells off of a percentage of the revenue. Right. So being able to say that we're now not making a couple percent on a $5 purchase, but a couple percent on a $30 purchase, you know, most people will buy two or three games. So, so you have this really product, rather, so this product refresh strategy was in there, yeah. um, which got people coming to the store more often to well, see got them, what was new. Most people would tend to buy two or three games. Right. But if we could get you to tend to buy a $30 game instead of a $5 game, we'd make more money off of you. So we didn't get, we had a core of people, a couple thousand people who would come every day. But most people would buy a game or two and then not come back. Never. So part of this, yeah, not really. Mm -hmm. So part of the promotion, uh, part of the product strategy, sorry, was to say, how do I make those users more valuable? Okay. Because most of our users come once or twice and they don't come back. So get them to buy a more expensive game. Increase in average order value, you know, just ramping it up with, with, so what was, how were you able to get away with the $30 versus the 10, versus the five or the 10? Well, they were new games. They were new games, okay. At that point, we're, we're making new games. And the first thing we did was we said, like, would this product work? And the survey results from our users were, yeah, they would. So then, that was product. Then prices, the game is now $30 because it's new. Yeah. And it's it's $30 everywhere. We're not charging a higher price so, for it. It launches at that price everywhere on the internet. Okay. And we could charge it too. Okay, so, so how did you sort of re... How did you align your ethos being good old games with new games? Uh, we, we changed the, the branding. We changed the company from good old games our url was always gog okay. but we changed our branding from good old games to just gog okay gotcha and it gotcha. didn't stand for anything anymore it was just we're gog what does that mean 
I don't know, what does Nike mean? Okay. I mean, okay, Nike is the Greek word for success, but most people don't know that. No, so, that's exactly. Like, that kind of thing is, uh, we just, and, and that was about, that was maybe almost three years to make that branding shift where okay. people stopped calling us good okay. So, so, so what was the impact of, of that change, that, that small, small but huge tweak, you know, um, where you change the, the, pro, the, you know, your product offering basically, and you're able to, you know, sell games at, you know, newer, newer games at higher prices. How did that change revenue and sales? Well, the automatically, well, I shouldn't say automatically, but it did uh, after we made the change, uh, users who came and signed up, <laughs> uh, if they bought new games, they tended to be worth three or maybe even four times as much as the users who only bought old games. So after we tested that and found that out, we started to say, okay, how do we promote in a different way? So now when you sign up and you buy an old game, we'll send an email to you that recommends new games that are similar. So that if you're only gonna buy two or three games, right, you bought an old game because it reminded you of the game, or maybe it was the game you played when you were a kid and you loved it. And now we say, hey, if you like this game, try out this new game, which is a lot like it, but has better graphics and is, you know, maybe a more modern user experience and kind of more fun for you to play. So that kind of driving folks into buying newer games had a, yeah, a real so benefit in, what, in the value was, for what, Was this like an automated email sequence or was this manual? Uh, well, we had to kind of figure out what the similar games were manually because yeah, the name of the game weird. isn't going to tell you crap. No. But since every game that we put in the store uh, was somebody in the company played and they knew what the game was. Okay. At that point, we were always able to say, like, what games are like this? And so we could build a database, kind of a relational database, and say, all right, what's similar here? How do we cross-promote these? Um, and then also some of the promotion stuff we did, uh, we had some giveaways. Yeah. And we would do a giveaway, and that giveaway would be hugely covered all over the internet, particularly the first couple we did because they were, it was a new thing. People hadn't really been doing game giveaways at this scale. And what we did was we said basically, anybody who wants to, come sign up with GOG and you'll get these free games for a limited time, because that puts the pressure on, right? And we get 100,000, 200,000 people sign up in 48 hours. <laughs> now, that's because every video game news site on the internet would be like, holy crap, GOG has these games for free, go now. And so, you know, we have um, like really, really well-respected games from maybe 1995 or something. And like everybody knew the game, everybody had heard about the game, and now it's free for 48 hours. Go sign up. So, so how many then, did you? How many did you give away, and how much did it cost the business to to do this? Uh, we would negotiate a flat upfront price with the owner of the game. We'd say, here's what we'll pay you, regardless of how many we give away. Okay. And we'd give away like everybody who signed up would get a copy. So we'd give away a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand copies, like a lot of copies, and. That ended up being one of the most commercially successful uh, ways to acquire users. Super, super cheap. I can't really go into precise numbers because of NDAs, but 
like extremely cheap per unit way to bring people into the community okay. and then start to say how many of them can we convert to being an actual customer okay so if we were to flip this on on its head and um imagine this was a physical product business you know where you were um selling actual game cds you know games in cds or dvds and, and disc basically um how would you have how do you have gone about the the giveaway obviously it's more challenging from a shipping standpoint and it's just more expensive you know um giving out the disc what would you suggest to our listeners who are predominantly you know physical product entrepreneurs um to to do if they're to utilize this tactic of um giveaways um giveaways are a lot harder to do with physical product because the cost per user is generally higher than the value per user but mm. like if i'm spending five dollars per user on a giveaway because my product costs let's say ten dollars like usually i need that person to buy three things like everyone to buy three things to make up the cost of giving them one and that that doesn't scale because everyone won't buy three things so the the way to do a giveaway then is to make it where there's some gating or some qualification um a really common one is to say, and this is why I think all these subscription services are, are quite popular in the physical world, right? Sign up for a longer term thing that you can cancel and we'll give you some stuff for it. Because a lot of people don't, or they forget the first month at least. And so you get a revenue hit off of them for that giveaway. It's, it's almost a guaranteed revenue return. Um, if you're in like a straight retail business, like giveaways are tough. Then you have to do chance to win or sweepstakes. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then there's gambling and then there's legal and like all the overhead and that's tough too, so. So it's a handle, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, um, so, um, oh, yeah, so, so yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so let's let's wrap things up. Is, is there any other thing you wanna talk about um, with regards to, to the marketing strategy employed on GOG.com that made a significant impact on, on, on its growth? Uh, yeah, I think one, one thing to really pay attention to is there's diminishing returns on anything that works, right? Uh, the, the first giveaway that GOG did was quite successful uh the second one was the most successful one because we picked a better game uh and then like the third and the fourth and i think we did five uh and they, they started being less and less successful you can only go back to a promotional idea so many times before it, it wears out and maybe if you wait a while you can go back and try again because now there's a new audience in a year or two uh but when you find something that works really really well it's also very important that you pay attention to when the returns are diminishing because you don't want to just assume, oh, this works super well, I'm just going to keep doing it for forever. And I'm going to project my revenue growth now out for two years based on the strength of this tactic, it's going to be phenomenal because that tactic won't always work. So keep in mind, like when you find a success that's fantastic, do it as much as you can 
But keep in mind that there will be an end, and you need to be ready for the next thing after that. Right. Okay. So you're ready to disrupt yourself. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Right. Um, it makes. Thank you so much, Trevor. Um, I always, always, always ask a few evergreen questions um, in my lightning round on every show. Um, they're just five questions that require a single answer. Um, and I'll be ready to fire when you are. As quickly as you care to. Okay. How do you hire people? Based off of potential. Potential. Okay. What are your three indispensable tools for managing your business? Google Analytics. Uh, Like that's the most indispensable one. Um, beyond that, uh, a dashboard of whatever your marketing expenses are. Like I use Excel, but I didn't want to just say Excel because that's a bit vague. Yeah. Um, and honestly, some project management tool to keep track of what the heck you're doing. Okay, cool. What one piece of advice can you give to listeners keen on driving marketing growth um, to their business, two to 10x marketing growth to their business? Listen. Listen. Your listen, users listen. are going to tell you, your users are going to tell you what you should do. Listen to them. It's super easy to be like, I know what to do. You probably don't. Good stuff. Good stuff. If you could choose one single book or resource that's made the highest impact on how you view building a business and growth, which would it be? The hard thing about hard things hard is thing a really good things. book. Yeah, for that. yeah, no silver bullets, just a lead bullets. Okay, right. Um, thank you so much for, for, for coming on the show. What's the best way for listeners interested in getting in touch with you to, to, to contact you, Trevor? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Trevor Longino. That's T R E V O R L O N G I N O. Okay. Um, find me there. You can find me on LinkedIn at LinkedIn slash in slash Trevor Longino. Mm-hmm. You can find me uh, on Facebook if you really want to at Facebook slash Trevor dot Longino. Pretty okay. easy to find me. Okay. Fantastic. 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 Thank you so much for sharing insights. I especially liked you know, um, your fundamentals, getting down to the fundamentals and how they amplify on digital, you know, how you translate those fundamentals to digital. I'd really love to spend a lot more time with you. But, um, you know, for our listeners who do, I'd actually, you know, touch base with you after the show to talk, talk to you about a few things. But for our listeners who, you know, love what they, they, they heard, they, they'll be in touch. And, you know, thank you so much again. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. I hope you have a good day. You too. Bye.